Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello, Six Packers, and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, Episode 21. Do you know that surveys show that 70% of Catholics no longer believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist? Well, I don't believe that. I believe they were never taught about the real presence in the first place. When asked to explain what the real presence is, nearly 9 out of 10 Catholics can't even come close to an explanation. So since they can't explain what it is, naturally they don't believe in it. And this lack of belief leads to every form of disrespect for the Eucharist, causing everyday Catholics to commit acts of abuse against it without even realizing it. The Eucharist is the very core of our Catholic faith. In fact, as a convert, I came to realize that Christianity makes absolutely no sense without the Eucharist. So in this episode, we're going to look at what the real presence really is, as well as look at the most common abuses, right after this. Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, is a welcome visitor to parishes across the United States every Sunday through his What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Using humor, immutable truth, and ignoring political correctness, Joe Sixpack helps the average Catholic in the pew better know and understand our holy and ancient faith in a way that is refreshing, awe-inspiring, and makes readers chest-pounding proud to be Catholic. And readers love it. Now you can enjoy Joe's work by getting the best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It book series. In fact, get two copies of each book, one for yourself and one for your pastor. Then your priest can decide if he wants to help your fellow parishioners by subscribing to the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Get your copy of The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It by Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. Let's begin by talking about what the Eucharist is. In the Holy Eucharist, Jesus gives us himself under the appearances of bread and wine, fully and completely. He's truly present in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in order to give himself to the Father for our salvation and to give himself as divine nourishment for our souls. I mean that literally. That may seem a little tough to swallow, but it's true. Since it's true, it can be proven, and that's exactly what I intend to do right now. Let's begin with looking at the time and place when Jesus established the Holy Eucharist. Jesus instituted the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday night at the Last Supper, the night before he was crucified. The Last Supper was the very first Mass. At the first Mass, during the Last Supper, he took bread in his sacred hands, gave the Father thanks and praise, broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup of wine, gave thanks and said, Drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. When Jesus said, This is my body, the substance of the bread was changed to the true body of Jesus Christ. Only the appearances, which are called accidentals, of the bread and wine remain. 
That is, all that remained of the bread are those things which affect the five senses, in this case, taste, appearance, touch, and smell. The same is true of the wine. When Jesus said, This is my blood, the entire substance of the wine was changed into his real blood. Therefore, Jesus' body and blood are really present in the Holy Eucharist. We speak of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ to distinguish the two appearances. However, and in fact, both are the same identical substance, Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, which is Christ's whole and entire. We believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist because he promised to give us his flesh as food and his blood as drink. Now we'll demonstrate why the Catholic Church believes this. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is how St. Luke begins his narrative of the Last Supper. The immediate question that comes to mind is, why would Jesus be so anxious to have this singular meal with his apostles when he knows that this will be his last meal? Does a death row inmate look forward to his last meal? Certainly not. For all intents and purposes, though, that's what's happening here. So why is Jesus actually looking forward to his last meal? To answer this, we have to begin by reading the sixth chapter of St. John. John did a remarkable job of showing Jesus' ability to work miracles as his lead-in to the promise of the Eucharist made by Christ. The sixth chapter of John opens with a miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people on five barley loaves and two fish. After preaching to the people, Jesus instructed his apostles to get into their boat and cross the Sea of Capernaum. But he himself slipped into the mountains to pray alone, unbeknownst to the people who had just listened to him. In the middle of the night, when the apostles were about halfway across the sea on their journey, Jesus performed his second miracle in this chapter. He came walking to them across the water. When Jesus got into the boat with the apostles, the third miracle of St. John took place because the boat was immediately at the shore where they intended to go. The Sea of Capernaum is really just a really big lake, a very big lake. Because the people wanted to be with Jesus, they spent the night going around this big lake to where the apostles would land their boat because they knew that wherever the apostles were, sooner or later Jesus would show up. They were amazed to see Jesus already with the apostles, since they knew he didn't get into the boat with them the day before. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? But Jesus ignored their question and cut right to the chase. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set a seal. Then Jesus went on to begin telling them what they had to do to inherit eternal life. Although ordinarily a wonderfully innovative people, the Jews of Jesus' day were theological airheads. They asked, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's unbelievable that the Jews would challenge Jesus after the miracle of feeding them all the day before, and the apparent miracle that occurred in the middle of the night, as was evident when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea in the morning. This is absolutely astonishing. Still, this is exactly what Jesus wanted. 
He said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He went on to explain that he was the bread sent from heaven by the Father. Up to that point, Jesus' followers understood him to be speaking symbolically or metaphorically. But he went on to tell them that he was the bread they would have to eat to inherit eternal life. In John 6, verses 52 through 57, it says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, so he who eats me will live because of me. Jesus' followers didn't believe he was being symbolic anymore. Now they understood him to be speaking literally. He said, My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. The word indeed made this statement imperative. He prefaced his entire statement with the phrase, truly, truly, which he always used to emphasize the importance of what he had to say. The followers' literal understanding of what Jesus said repulsed them. John 6.66 says, After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. If they misunderstood Jesus when they took his words literally, why didn't he stop them and explain what he meant? Any other time they misunderstood, he'd explain, so why not now? Both the Jews, who were suspicious of him, and his disciples, who'd accepted everything up to this point, would have remained had he told them he meant no more than a symbol. He didn't go after them because he intended for them to take him literally. Rather than chase down the people who walked away, Jesus simply turned toward his apostles and said, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. The apostles had been with him from the beginning. They also understood what he said to be literal. They didn't know how he'd do what he said, but they believed that he'd eventually show them. Jesus finally explained the how at the Last Supper. In Luke 22:15, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He'd earnestly desired to give him his flesh and blood since he first made the promise. In verses 16 through 20, Jesus proceeds to give them what he had promised them, and he does it at the first Mass. These passages, as well as others, explain why Catholics believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. The short of it is that we believe in the real presence because Jesus said so. Did the first Christians believe in the real presence, though? Obviously, the Apostle Paul believed it. In writing on this topic in 1 Corinthians, he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let every man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And what should it be recognized as? A mere metaphor? Then how can receiving unworthily be equated with being guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord? 
Paul isn't the only first century Christian we have to attest to the real presence. There are many, many extant extra-biblical writings of the early Christians from the first few centuries. Let's take a look at a few. In writing to the Smyrnans in the first century, Ignatius of Antioch said, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father, in his goodness, raised him up again. Forty years later, Justin Martyr wrote, We call this food Eucharist, and no one else is permitted to partake of it, except one who believes our teaching to be true and who has been washed in the washing which is for the remission of sins and for the regeneration, and is thereby living as Christ has enjoined. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too as we have been taught the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished is both the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. Iranius of Lyons, in his masterwork called Against Heresies, which was written toward the close of the second century, said that Christ has declared the cup a part of creation to be his own blood from which he causes our blood to flow, and bread, a part of creation, which he has established as his own body from which he gives increase to our bodies. Then Arrhenius asks, If the Lord were from other than the Father, how could he rightly take bread, which is of the same creation as our own, and confess it to be his body and affirm that the mixture in the cup is his blood? Origen, writing about A.D. 244, demonstrated that reverence is given to the smallest particle of the host. He wrote, I wish to admonish you with examples from your religion, you're accustomed to take part in the divine mysteries, so you know how, when you have received the body of the Lord, you reverently exercise every care lest a particle of it fall and lest anything of the consecrated gift perish. You account yourselves guilty, and rightly do you so believe if any of it be lost through negligence. Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, said in his sermon to the newly baptized delivered in the years 373, You shall see the Levites bringing loaves and a cup of wine and placing them on the table. So long as the prayers of supplication and entreaties have not been made, there is only bread and wine. But after the great and wonderful prayers have been completed, then the bread has become the body and the wine the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a final example, taken from the dozens I could have used, Cyril of Jerusalem, in his catechetical lectures, presented in the middle of the 4th century, told his listeners, Do not therefore regard the bread and wine as simply that, for they are, according to the Master's declaration, the body and blood of Christ. Even though the census suggests to you the other, let faith make you firm. Don't judge in this matter by taste, but be fully assured by faith, not doubting that you have been deemed worthy of the body and blood of Christ. Okay, so we've established what the real presence is, and we've proven it by Jesus and Paul's own words. We've also looked at a few examples of what the early Christians believed, and it's no different than what Paul believed. So we've established that the real presence of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is real. But I had mentioned abuses. What of those abuses? 
Nobody in their right mind who believes that Jesus is God, which we have proven in the past, and believes in his real presence would intentionally abuse the body of Jesus. After all, Paul told us, anyone who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks judgment upon himself. In other words, he'd be condemning his own soul to hell. The common abuses made against the Eucharist by Catholics today are further evidence that they simply haven't been taught about the real presence. Although I've repeatedly told you that I believe you're the cream of the crop, which is why you listen to the cantankerous Catholic, it's highly likely that this episode is your first exposure to the Church's genuine teaching on the real presence. Consequently, you're also quite likely to be in the habit of abusing the Eucharist simply because you don't know any better. If you've been in the habit of abusing the Eucharist in some ways we're going to look at now, don't worry about it. God only holds you accountable for what you know, not what you don't know. But since he created the human mind to know truth, you do have an obligation to know what's right and wrong. That's why we're doing this today. Let's look at the most common abuse that we can all see with our own two eyes. I'm talking about those people who receive communion, then dart for the door before Mass has ended. This is actually a mortal sin. Let me preach on it. A law of the church, better specifying God's first and third commandments, obliges us to attend Mass on every single Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation. That means it's a mortal sin, a sin worthy of hell, not to attend Mass on Sunday. People who leave Mass before the celebrating priest proclaims that the Mass has ended haven't fulfilled their morally binding obligation to attend Mass. That alone is a mortal sin, but by the fact that they've used communion as part of the commission of this sin, they're abusing the Eucharist. The abuse of any sacred person, place, or thing, and the Eucharist is certainly sacred, is a sacrilege. So to leave the Mass after communion and prior to the end of Mass is actually multiple mortal sins. It gets worse. Once a person commits a sacrilege, every single communion after that is an additional mortal sin of sacrilege, and they just build up on the soul until they're all confessed. Since you listen to the cantankerous Catholic, chances are you don't leave Mass immediately after communion because you're someone who loves our holy and ancient faith. Unfortunately, that doesn't let you off the hook. We all have a lifelong moral obligation to practice the works of mercy, all of them. The works of mercy come in two forms, the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. One of the spiritual works of mercy is to admonish the sinner. So you have an obligation to say something to the people you know who leave Mass early. You might say, Joe, that's Father's job. Well, yeah, it is. But it's doubtful he knows who's doing it because he's rightly focused on distributing Holy Communion. That means it's up to you. So if you know people who leave Mass after receiving communion, say something to them. Charitably, which is the operative word here, charitably explain to them why it's wrong to immediately leave Mass after they go to Holy Communion. Now your rebuttal may be, Joe, I can't do that. They'll get mad at me. Well, maybe they will, even if you say something to them in the most charitable way possible. So? At the end of the day, it's not their feelings you need to be worried about, but rather pleasing God by obeying the spiritual works of mercy. After all, our relationships to others only have temporary implications, but our relationship to God has eternal implications. Think about that.
There are numerous abuses and acts of disrespectfulness we regularly commit before, during, and after Mass. I'm not going to talk about them in this episode because we really don't have any more time for it, but I'll be happy to do it in future episodes if you tell me that's what you want. The most important takeaway from this episode is the reality of the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist and how our eternal destiny is linked so intimately to the Holy Eucharist. What do Billy D. Williams, the celebrated American artist Norman Rockwell, and famed comedian Jimmy Durante have to do with one man's journey from conservative Judaism to the cross? Everything. Marty Barrick has lived one of the most fascinating conversion journeys ever told. In Calvary Road, Marty's biography, you can read about Marty's military service with Billy D. Williams, how Norman Rockwell helped him pass a college course, how, in his deep abiding love for his late wife, Marty helped Irene travel the road of sanctity, how the times are quickly reaching critical mass for fulfilling prophecy concerning the Jews, and much, much more. Get your copy of Calvary Road by Marty Barrick today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the Daily Wire. No good deed goes unpunished. An Australian man falsely accused of sexual assault after helping a woman with her broken down car has just learned that. 36-year-old Kenan Basic spent weeks in jail, lost his relationship, and was repeatedly slandered after a woman falsely accused him of sexual misconduct. You can read the whole story by clicking on the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to the Daily Wire. Chicago's Archbishop Cardinal Blaise Kupik was forced to apologize to the city's Jewish community after controversial priest Father Michael Flager invited the anti-Semitic leader of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, to deliver a speech from the pulpit of St. Sabina Church. You can read the whole story by clicking on the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to LifeSite News. The youngest child of pro-life author Abby Johnson made his on-screen debut in New York last week through a 4D ultrasound. Johnson and her unborn child appeared at Focus on the Family's Alive from New York pro-life rally in Times Square on Saturday afternoon. The event was planned as an affirmation of the dignity of unborn human life in the face of New York State's new pro-abortion legislation. During the rally, Johnson went into a mobile medical unit behind a stage where a technician transmitted a 4D ultrasound of her child on giant screens in the square. This was simply amazing. It will probably bring you to tears. It did me. You can read the whole story by clicking on the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 2 Hats off to LifeSite News. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds gave her signature Friday to a state budget containing two measures denying taxpayer funds to two left-wing social priorities, gender reassignment surgery and the abortion lobby's influence over sex education. Marvelous legislation. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. 
Catholic News Pick Number One. Hats off to LifeSite News. Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed a law that will ban most abortions on preborn babies with detectable heartbeats, defying left-wing celebrity threats to boycott the state and welcoming an inevitable legal challenge. I don't think those folks in Georgia are too worried about what the Holly Weirdos have to say to them. <laughs> you can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Doc Brackett served as a physician for years in a small town, but made little money. That was because Doc was always taking care of poor people who had no money to pay him. He'd get up in the middle of the coldest nights and ride 20 miles to tend to a sick woman or child or patch up somebody who got hurt. Everybody knew of Doc's office over a clothing store. A sign at the foot of the narrow stairs said, Dr. Brackett, office upstairs. Doc Brackett was a bachelor. He was once supposed to marry the banker's daughter, but on his wedding day, Doc got a call to go out to the country to take care of a small Mexican child. His fiancée, Miss Elvira, became angry and called off the wedding. She said that a man who'd think more of a Mexican child than his own wedding was no good. Many of the women in town agreed with her, but the parents of the Mexican child were very grateful to Doc when the child recovered. Doc never turned to anyone away. He lived to be 70 years old, and then one day he keeled over on the sofa in his office and died. There was one of the biggest funerals ever seen in the town. Everybody went. The people began to talk of raising money to place a nice headstone on Doc's grave as a memorial. The talk got so far as arguing about what should be carved on the stone, but the matter dragged along and nothing was done. Then one day, the funeral homeowner said that Doc's memorial was already on his grave, with an epitaph and all. He said the Mexican parents of the child Doc saved years ago had worried about him not having a headstone. They had no money themselves, so they took the sign from the foot of the stairs at Doc's office and set it over the grave. It read, Dr. Brackett, office upstairs. Doc Brackett really lived according to Jesus' commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He served his patients faithfully, whether they were rich or poor. He didn't do it for the money, but rather for the love of God and his neighbor. That's the reason why his epitaph over the grave is true. Dr. Brackett, office upstairs. It meant that Doc wasn't in his office over the clothing store anymore, but that his office was now upstairs in heaven. That's the way God rewards those who love their neighbors as themselves for his sake. Hey, Six Packers, that's all for this episode. I've enjoyed having you with me. Don't forget to like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. The links are in my show notes. Also, remember to visit joesixpackanswers.com to sign up for my free email course. Each short lesson arrives in your inbox every three days. We also have the Cantankerous Catholic Social Media Group you can join to discuss anything about Catholicism, our country, or anything else on your mind. I visit the page every day. The link's also in my show notes. There are lots of other neat things of interest in my show notes, too. You can find them at cantankerouscatholic.com. And remember to live by the Joe Sixpack battle cry. Comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. 
This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.